0: I just get these incredible feelings thinking about this podcast episode. I am so pumped that you are listening to it and extra excited to be putting it out into the ether of the world. Uh, man, this guy's just awesome. So I imagine you're really going to enjoy it. We go all over the universe with thoughts and ideas. And hey, here's a couple of our sponsors. I want to give a quick shout out to them before we jump into the meat of the show. Uh, sponsor number one. Hey, thank you so much. Boulevard Fitness over off El Cajon Boulevard in San Diego. I work out there a lot, you know, three, four, five, six days per week. It's beautiful. It's open air. They've got everything you need to get your pump on. Uh, a little outdoor spot, which is pretty cool. And there's a, a super amazing trainer that does, you know, group fitness out there. There's many trainers there. There's one that I know specifically, Sarah more, and I just really love working out there. Uh, it's a short walk uh, for me, so if you're in the area, it makes sense, but also if you're visiting San Diego, I would check out Boulevard Fitness, super great place, has that old school gym feel with a lot of just nice, great people in there, um, upstairs, downstairs, equipment, uh, everything that you need to you know, make yourself feel good and put yourself in a better physical form, and great training there, individual and group, so check out Sarah Moore, if you are looking for some training over there too. Hey, we're also sponsored by Next Coffee, N-X-X-T. It's premium fuel for a premium life. I love that idea. You know, when you think about going to the gas station, uh, most of us just put regular fuel in our car, right? Unless you've got a certain kind of vehicle. Maybe you have an electric vehicle, right? And I guess electricity is all the same. There's no premium Electricity, but when it comes to your body, there is a difference in what you put into it. Are you putting junk in there? Uh, and that can happen in any with anything with coffee, especially. There's different types of coffee. There's different types of coffee ratings. Uh, I was talking to someone last night who uh, just tried the signature Ethiopian for the first time, and they said it just felt clean. That was the word that they used. They actually used it for espresso, and even though it's not really that particular roast isn't really an espresso bean you can taste and feel the difference Uh, there is coffee that is just old and stale and not ripe and that's actually a lot of the coffee that people end up getting because it's mass-produced especially as companies grow and grow and grow they don't uh, keep the quality and the sourcing the same for their beans because it's hard to scale like that so you got to get in with that coffee that is uh just very special and and you know, grown with love. And I know it sounds kind of weird to say, oh, you want love behind your coffee bean, but that does matter. The people matter. The process matters. The quality of bean, where it's grown, how it's processed, how it's washed, all of that matters. And that's what Next Coffee does. They also have some really cool gear on their website. So shopnext.com, S-H-O-P-N-X-X-T, S-H-O-P-N-X-X-T, premium fuel for a premium life, uh, you can use the code HDP, that's Human Derek Podcast, right, HDP, and I think you get like 10 or 15% off or something like that, and uh, and if it's not 15% off, you know, go tell those guys, hey, uh, it's supposed to be 15% off, my checkout code isn't working, so it should be good though, 10, 15% off, HDP in the discount box. I believe they're doing free shipping on all coffee right now through the holidays, so get yours. Hey, that's also not a bad idea. Why not get some coffee for a loved one, some premium coffee that could make a pretty cool gift, especially when you see the packaging on that shady lion roast. So check out next coffee. Let's get into the episode. Let's go.
1: See, this is the real secret of life—to be completely engaged with the here and now. Everybody wants to fulfill the highest, truest expression of yourself. <laughs> it was all a dream. Today is about the power of you. You've now entered the Human Derek Podcast.
0: Okay, game on. <laughs> well, cheers. Cheers. And uh excellent choice of coffee cup. Oh thank you. <laughs> <laughs> of all the uh of all the ones in the cupboard, you like dug deep in the back and grabbed Socrates. <laughs> and didn't even know it, huh? It was just <laughs> just what it was. Yeah. How's your volume by the way on your headphones? Oh, uh, it's pretty good. Okay. I'm gonna turn mine up a mm-hmm. little. And if you want to turn your headphones up, it's right there. No, it was pretty good. Okay. Excellent. Did you did you taste the coffee? No, not yet. Oh, I'm like it's okay. It's okay. They you turn
1: know. your volume on, you're gonna hear me slurp through it. <laughs> I know they pick up <laughs> right on cue. Mm. Pretty good.
0: Does it meet? Does it meet the expectations? Mm-hmm. Actually, you know what? That tastes a little watery to me.
1: It does a little bit, water, but but it's not acidic. That's what that's I wonder. What
0: looking for. I think I put too much I might have water. I yeah. yeah. Huh? Do we gotta rebrew it? <laughs> I'm like very particular about my coffee. I'm like I immediately went, wait, that's too watery.
1: Yeah, it was a little bit watery compared to my taste because I'm an espresso drinker as well. But, yeah. but I was looking for that acidic taste. It doesn't have
0: it. Do you okay. want a shot of espresso in there? That's gonna take me like two minutes. Do you
1: have yeah, that, that's a yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> We're pausing. I'll have a
1: shot of espresso on the We're side. Doing, uh yep.
0: We'll just record it all. Everybody okay. likes to hear the the marriage and the the right. kids <laughs> things, though. But okay, we're back. We got our espresso, mm-hmm. or uh, because I know Mauricio will listen to this episode. I'm going to say espresso because he he's going to like he's going to twitch a little and his Italian heart's going to flicker <laughs> a beat and uh, and put yeah, him out of his misery.
1: Espresso.
0: Cool. Well, there we go. I can't believe. I'm the coffee guy, and I made watery coffee. Oh, don't so worry. <laughs> that's embarrassing. It's
1: not acidic, though. Most coffees in San Diego are very acidic, which just hurts my tongue and belly. But this is this is not acidic, which is a good sign.
0: Yeah, that's uh, well. I'm glad you noticed that too. Some people don't realize that there's a difference between um, this is a, a medium roast, but it's even a light medium mm. roast. And generally, a lighter medium roast is more "quote unquote" acidic. Mm-hmm. But the, what, what's really happening is that most coffee that you get Mm -hmm. just in general the beans aren't ripe Mm -hmm. or they're not the right amount of ripeness so coffee companies will uh roast them like just over roast them roast Mm them way more yeah oh you know about Mm -hmm. this okay so that's and so when you're getting it it's like it's It's just when they're trying to cover up the coffee Mm -hmm. taste because it's not i think
1: it also makes sense with regards to like because most people order like milky coffees
0: Um, make sure i don't know that your microphone's picking up at all
1: oh really yeah. hello oh
0: there you go yeah huh. hello I'm gonna,
1: I'm gonna turn you up a little bit more okay do it there that's better okay all right yeah i was saying like most people order like milky coffee um yeah like when you have acidic it just kind of like blends in with the milk so people don't but when you order a shot of espresso it's like very into your face acidic it's just bad that's why i order my beans from uh, um, italy it's like Lavazza or like vergano or oh. they know how to do it
0: <laughs> okay well i'm excited for you to open up the uh the Shady Lion then you know do a little taste test I know, you know okay. I would it, love to I wouldn't that one's probably not going to make the best espresso I mean mm. it could mm-hmm. but it's designed more for uh, brewing mm-hmm. like a, a like, pour over mm-hmm. French press you know things like that uh, that one should be good though that, that bag right mm-hmm. there that's actually an Italian
1: I'll play violin on the first day <laughs> Opening day. <laughs>
0: okay, oh, I like that. even a little video. I I didn't realize that though. That's that's perfect though. That's the one I grabbed. There were like four or five in there, and the mm-hmm. ones that I just was like, all right, probably this one. So cool. Yeah. And if you uh, if you think yours is better, still, that's okay. I'll just hunt you down and <laughs> give you a hard time. So right.
1: I'll try to be gentle with my criticism. <laughs> that's okay. I, lo- I
0: actually love criticism, and we we were talking about this mm-hmm. before we started recording that. Uh, questions are super important. Mm-hmm. And well, why don't you, before we dive into that, guys, share a little bit about who you are, what you do.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, my name is Shasha Arani. I am a second year PhD at UC San Diego. Uh, I'm studying uh, my, my uh, what I'm getting my PhD on is astroparticle physics, which is... the the synthesis of uh, astrophysics and high energy particle physics. I try to look at the extreme astronomical environments and look for for the fundamental laws of nature uh, whether in how nucleons are formed or like subatomic particles are formed or the mass of neutrinos to dark matter dark energy and all sorts of stuff like that because uh, the, the the trick of that is like uh, we can we can try building uh, experiments on the earth but that's obviously limited because it's like human capacity but nature provides us with this vast laboratory of extreme conditions in the universe like white dwarfs neutron stars black holes Big Bang uh, and and if if we be smart enough to utilize them properly, there's like a wealth of knowledge which we can never achieve on the earth. So that's kind of what I do.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, it's wild, right? You just dropped like thirty different terms that <laughs> I'm like, all right, I've got more homework to do. I've already been doing homework, you know, since we first spoke and mm-hmm. met and had coffee, which was which was great. So I'm like, all right, I've got to learn at I least see
1: all the Ravelli books around <laughs> you. <laughs> oh, that,
0: that's just what I do. Like when I get interested in something, you know, I'm. Wonderful. I'm into it and would like to have you know a somewhat intelligent conversation. Mm-hmm. And I, I also knew and, and I did discuss this a bit too. Is that I, I find that whatever you get into, mm-hmm. you know, uh, seems to relate to just our our lives in general. Mm-hmm. Like it's very relational. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you actually you mentioned nature too, and most of the time people think of like plants and trees mm-hmm. and going in the woods. But I like how when you say nature, you in cosmos. Yeah, you go much bigger. Yeah. Yeah, um, I
1: think that was that was a definition before we realized um we're not the center of the universe and Earth is not separate from the heavenly bodies and like everything is not rotating around the yeah, I think when when we realized we're just a planet in the galaxy, then my definition of nature at least changed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> when, when did you figure that out?
1: Well, <laughs> people figured it out before me well when I read them properly and I tried to understand, them, it just suddenly clicked that uh because I love all these philosophers from my enlightenment, like David Hume and uh, um I John Locke and they talk about nature as in cosmos but but and the nature right now means something different, as you say it means like plants and like animals and like the earth nature but uh, yeah as you said when I mentioned nature I mean like cosmic uh, nature
0: hmm. and uh have you always been curious and I, I say that from a place of to to do what you do you have to maintain a, hmm. a but to me it seems like a very strong level of curiosity
1: well thank you but uh well i in a sense that I've always wanted to know and in a sense that I was always very um um Rebellious against authority. I, I did not particularly listen to what people told me. I wanted to be uh, justified uh, hmm. uh, or I, I wanted things to stand on some sort of ground. And uh, um, probably my dad was very influential in that because he. Um, he's an educated man too, and he was he was very insistent on arguments. So sometimes we sat and like talked for like three four hours, and all my parents all my mom and sister got sick and tired of it, <laughs> just, just left. But we just stood there. Sometimes it got very heated. Uh, but but yeah, I think in a sense I was, I was always like I asked, I try to ask too many questions in my classes. The people who are in my classes know. I hope it's not that annoying. <laughs> I, cannot, I cannot control myself. <laughs> it's
0: it's important to ask questions, mm-hmm. you know, and you, you say arguing and and I I like that term, you know, I immediately think discourse mm-hmm. and it's something that is uh, both an art and and fundamental for us.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And yet, you know, it's there's a lot of people that when they when they argue mm-hmm. or or have this debate, they're not doing it from a place of actually receiving what the other person is saying. I mm-hmm. think to be truly good at it or to make it generative, you know, good, what's what's good discourse, what's good quality conversation. Mm-hmm. Like you have to be able to receive the information and then provide new information, mm-hmm. this, you know, tennis game of, of ideas.
1: Yeah, people don't listen well, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a quote by Hemingway, I think. He says, like, when someone talks, just listen. Completely, just don't talk, try to talk in your, into your hat. Uh, don't try to like, I uh, know. Come up with arguments. Just listen completely and try to understand what's happening. Then, then you'll explain your thoughts as well. But as you said, that it's like it's like breathing, right? The inhale and exhale is both crucial. If you're exhaling all the time, there's nothing to let out.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> some would say uh, inhaling is is. Uh, really important, like mm-hmm. probably more important than next. I can get a little bit out, but that's uh, a good, it's a good uh, analogy there. And we were talking a bit about as well. And I, I like this idea of uh, science mm-hmm. and science. The last few years has been a word that was used almost weaponized in a sense of mm-hmm. uh, what's been happening with the, the medical science specifically, mm-hmm. but really truly good science and it seems like most of the work that you're doing you have to be able to ask questions uh have validity to it Mm -hmm. you know there's nothing that's you know the sacred cow is that is that a safe assumption Mm -hmm. yeah
1: yep um as i was like telling you while you were making the coffee uh um i'm so lucky to be working with these two great physicists george fuller and Brian Keating, and like almost majority of our research meetings is just someone presenting something, and everyone trying to like. Bring it absolutely down to the ground by, by all sorts of criticisms from the way the plots are made, from the way the data was gathered, from the way the telescope functions, to the way the analysis was done, assumptions in it. So, um, yeah, that's that's what physicists are to, try, to, try to do day and night. I got into some trouble for doing that in some talks, but, <laughs> but in the general scheme of things, uh, that's that's how it should be, yeah.
0: Well, it's, it's the approach to how you mm-hmm. do it, right? Does it come from a good place or mm-hmm. does it come from a place to try and, and bring someone down in a mean way? And, mm-hmm. and my you know guess here would be that it's not to be mean, it's mm-hmm. to be constructive.
1: Is it out of selfishness or selflessness, Towards the mm-hmm. topic that you're studying? Oh, um, that's cool. Yeah.
0: Why, why do you think that for, you know, we all have egos. Mm-hmm. We need one of those to, to run around in the world. That's our identity. But uh, why do you think... And maybe you find this in your field as well, that Mm -hmm. there are really big egos in in a sense of, uh, people trying to create a sacred cow. No, this is fundamental. This is the way Mm -hmm. it is. There's no way to change it. But why do you think that just exists out there in general? It's a very good
1: point? I was actually thinking about it this morning. Um, I think it's because, um, delving with the unknown is very difficult emotionally, maybe, um, um to To keep working on something for hours and hours uh, without knowing whether it exists or not. And you're like building basically this imaginary edifice um, um, of ideas and developing them. So it's very emotionally difficult for people, for humans, I would say, because we're creatures of certainty to some extent. And uh, I was, I got to the conclusion this morning, there's no way around it. You have to assume certain things are true and right and get emotionally fixated on it for now and and develop whatever you have based on that. Um, I've, I've noticed most of these people who are very adamant about their principles, uh, when you sit and talk to them clearly and in a very like clear, logical, and unconfrontational way, they, they accept it. They're like, yeah, I'm, I'm, this is just an assumption I made. Um, in order to explain all, everything else. Usually when you see them react, it's because they see some confrontation outside and they try to like uh, close up the bubble and defend it. But um, m- multiple times, like great physicists that I've met, um, and I've really pinned them down on certain fundamental axioms that they believe. At the, at, at the end, they 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 say it. Like with Rovelli, uh, he has this famous uh, paper on mathematical platonism which he argues against it, and I am very much for it. And we had this long chain of correspondences. And th- at the end, we agreed to disagree. He was like, yep, I think this is what makes sense to me. I don't, I cannot prove it. I was like, fair enough.
0: Hmm. <laughs> well, and that's, uh, you know, the fact that you're debating something, you know, that makes it theory, mm-hmm. right? So how do you, I mean, in your world, like how do you know something is 100% true, or does that just not well, happen?
1: That's the exciting part. <laughs> you never know. Huh. He just, He just uh that's the actual the most fun part of it and upon the the part that's very exhausting to people you just Mm -hmm. have to assume certain things are true and then build on it but that that part is very difficult to not have full certainty on the truth of something and then building on it Uh, but that's the most exciting part i just come up with ideas left and right and i'll try to develop them through equations and predictions and out of 100 one works and that's that's all i want um just, just look at look at plants, right? I was like mentioning this to one of my friends yesterday, who's in botany and like plant growing and stuff. Uh, her name is Abby. Uh, I was like, look, look how flowers grow, right? They just spread their seeds. <laughs> they don't know where it goes. They don't know who's going to carry it. They don't know where it's going to land. Whether it's going to be proper water. Whether it's not going to be like too dry, too whatever. Uh, but just just spread it as much as you can, and you just let it sit in the ground. It'll, something eventually grow out of it. That's the exciting part. I think that's that's the part that makes most people not be interested in theoretical research. Uh, very, it's very, it's. I find it extremely exciting and fascinating, but I could I could see the uh, terrifying part of uncertainty in it.
0: Yeah, and we, there's a lot of research around our human needs. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's a short list of things mm-hmm. that uh, we all are at different markers. If we put everything on a scale of zero to 10, mm-hmm. you know, you might be at a 10 on one or a five on another. And, and one of them is variety. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and that's kind of like the, unknown. Oh, mm-hmm. and another one is, is knowing a sense of security and knowing. Mm-hmm. And so I could imagine someone who must know something, mm-hmm. uh, would run away from this at the, at the same time. It makes me think of, you know, religion mm-hmm. in a sense. It's, it's interesting because you'll find someone that is, you know, very strong in their faith and religion. And they will say something like, I know that we're going to heaven after this. Mm -hmm. And it's like, there's no, how did you prove that? Right. Mm -hmm. But they have faith in it and they know So they're very certain Mm -hmm. in that. And, uh, and when people's faith in something gets challenged, that's very hard for them. Mm -hmm. You're basically challenging your faith every day.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. But I think that the, the beautiful thing about science is like your faith, uh, in things ultimately turns into um, colors and music and nature. You come up with numbers and laws and principles, and you see uh, existing reality right in front of you. You build telescopes, you do, like, build colliders. Um, 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 you do all sorts of experiments, and then you verify your faith. Um, and it stands for now until the next generation of tests. But uh, I think that's what uh, uniquely... Uh, um, separates science from, from all the other faith-oriented um, um, pursuits. At the, they all share the same need for faith and certain ideas, but the beauty of science is like it leads to, as I said, like uh, uh, colors and music and shapes and forms in nature and ultimately you can, you can, you can feel it. Um,
0: Would you say you think in a very visual way?
1: Oh, I think in all sorts of ways. <laughs> 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 um, I'm I'm very uh, musical by heart. Um, so um, I think a lot in terms of harmonies and musics and stuff. But I think a true way that I think is not, it's like, it happens unconsciously. It happens at the back of my head. So I just let the ideas sit there. And then they the problem is you never know how long you should wait. Uh, sometimes you have like assignment due dates and <laughs> mm. research presentation due dates. And it doesn't really work like that, but... Maybe that's why it's like due dates. I want I want the subconscious to do its job. Um, but unconscious, I meant. Uh, but yeah. Um, no, I think the true part of thinking happens unconsciously. You just feed it with ideas and excitements and emotions, and it just boils into something interesting and comes out, and you have to catch it at the right time. Uh, that's why I have my canvas ready. I have my violin ready. I have my I don't know uh, notebooks ready to just catch it when it comes out.
0: When lightning strikes, exactly. I think the kids would say uh, these days, let it cook. Oh, and really? You heard that term? They're like, when somebody's, you know, boiling something or they're like, yeah, let, just it, let cook. it cook. That's yeah. hilarious. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, I understand it.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, read a little bit of quantum mm-hmm. uh, physics, the this one book that basically just had the slit experiment explained mm-hmm. six or seven times. And I read it a couple years ago and I was like, okay, like Which this book is was cool. that? Do you remember? It, it's a, you know what? No, mm-hmm. I don't. Fair <laughs> enough. I, I would, I could, find, but it was. You
1: remember the experiment? That's the major part. Okay.
0: Yeah. And the, what I liked about it, it was like, you know, quantum physics for beginners or like the first book you should read on quantum physics, some, some title like that, basically. Mm-hmm. And it was, I don't know if I got a bad print of it because some of the grammar wasn't too great really? or something, <laughs> but what I liked about it is it just took the one experiment mm-hmm. and I had seven or eight chapters or maybe it was seven or eight chapters in where I started to really, you know, like, mm-hmm. okay, I think this makes a little bit of sense. Um, but it was every, everything was just redescribing the experiment over mm-hmm. and over and over in different ways mm-hmm. until it sunk in. And I was like, okay, this is what I needed to, to start to get into this. So mm-hmm. I planted that seed a couple of years ago and now I'm reading that Carlo Rovelli book, right? I say his mm-hmm. name properly. Okay. Carlo Rovelli, And, uh, uh, I'm doing mostly Audible mm-hmm. right now, and I got the White Holes. You is, it the,
1: is it the? Is it the? Reality is not what it seems. Is that yes. that book? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: and I've I think I'm a f- little over four hours into the Audible mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. I got a couple hours left, but as I'm walking around, you know, it's uh, did uh, there's a segment of it that talks about space time, mm-hmm. and so I started like that, started bending my mind, going, mm-hmm. oh wow, time moves slower. Mm-hmm. You know, at a lower altitude. Mm-hmm. Wait a second, how does that make sense, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the difference in in time, you know, the void of time that can exist if something's happening mm-hmm. on Mars versus here—it's not really a delay. It's just not anywhere. It's mm-hmm. in this like neutral or, or void. I was kind of the term that I thought. But what's really interesting now is I'm learning about like quanta a little bit, mm-hmm. and I'm walking around and and I realize like I've mostly thought of the space that exists between us as empty mm-hmm. you know that's just been my visual or, or cerebral representation of it mm-hmm. and now learning about the you know quanta interacting with each other and uh, i think uh, quantum gravity is the, mm-hmm. the segment i'm in i'm like i was looking at these bushes and walking, and instead of seeing just empty air between me and the bush I started Mm -hmm. seeing like oh my gosh these little particles yeah you imagine
1: what I see when I look around (laughs) oh my gosh man it must be wild yeah tell me a little bit about that I'm actually taking this uh, class called quantum field theory which is the ultimate um, 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 theory that we have yet in order to explain everything besides gravity and dark matter and dark energy But (laughs) but we're trying to find a way to put those in but um this theory is basically uh, uh, the synthesis of quantum mechanics and special theory of relativity, which is Einstein's way of saying like uh, if you move faster, uh, space and time change. Uh, no acceleration, just just constant velocity movement. Um, and this one of the most striking predictions of these of this theory is like when you do the calculations, this concept of like particles and antiparticles vacuum bubbles, these these keep popping out and they just cancel out from the equations. So from doing the calculations you know they're there. The idea of virtual particles and like uh, the fact that vacuum is like a boiling sea of dancing particles and antiparticles which just emerge and disappear and emerge and disappear. Um, um, Yeah, I think uh, uh, one of the striking discoveries of uh, physics in the past century was like the fact that there's no vacuum basically, it's like there's always fields everywhere, and then what you call vacuum is basically a lower uh, lower level of perturbation or like excitement mm. compared to the rest of the universe. But there's n- never an emptiness, you know, and that that comes to us with the with the cosmic microwave background too, right? The cosmic light, it's the light after Big Bang, and uh, it, was, it was it was right after. Photon decoupled from the rest of the particles. And it, every, the photon just froze in space-time. So wherever you look at it, you see the same uh, energy, the same photon with the same energy. It's not the same photon because photons are, distinguished, uh, are not distinguishable. But um, uh, you see the same wavelength and energy in every direction you look everywhere throughout the universe. Uh, so it's just that's the basic thing to let us know that there's like at least there's light everywhere.
0: (laughs) Huh? So I'm not sure if I'm tracking on that. So what do you mean by wavelength?
1: Wavelength is like, um, so light is wave Uh or at least it has wave properties as we know now, uh, as predicted by Maxwell, uh, and has a frequency and it has a wavelength, um, in a sense that the wavelength times frequency is always a constant number. Speed of light, and what we mean by wavelength is is the length of one oscillation, and frequency is like how many oscillations happen per second. So you can imagine as you multiply those together, it gives you meters per second, which is the speed of light.
0: Okay, and mm. you see that you're saying everywhere it's the same.
1: I'm, I'm being funded by this project called uh, called Simon's Array uh, by Professor Keating, and it's to it's that's his job. It's like this telescope in Chile. Uh, which which its job is to detect the cosmic microwave background to see ever more precision. And you detected one part in like, I don't know, a million or 10 million precision, and you see all sorts of oscillations up and down from it. So the cosmic microwave background is, as I said, the light everywhere. Uh, uh, it's ubiquitous everywhere you look in the night sky, but if you look closely, there are like some signatures imprinted on it which are relics of big bang oh
0: okay uh, that so, makes yeah. sense and so it's little signatures the every little ups way. and
1: downs uh, yeah. uh certain parts of the sky which would it's basically a projection of the the sea of photons very early on in the big bang and it has like a wealth of wealth of uh information in it with regards to how to everything interacts with each other or how did a big bang form or how fast did it form and
0: could you almost say like if we were all doing genetic testing and it's mm-hmm. like you know we all came Tracing from Genghis Khan yeah. like <laughs> Gen- like
1: Genghis Khan is the Big
0: Bang of our mm-hmm. where we're at yeah it's a pretty goofy analogy but. yeah I don't
1: know. <laughs> <laughs> you can think of it like that yeah I don't like Genghis Khan but I, and I really like Big Bang so I don't like those to be associated oh. by
0: wait why don't you like so I always thought Genghis Khan was like a a bad guy like evil super villain oh, I mean, he was an
1: idiot right I mean, just <laughs> so uh,
0: I I kind of I read a lot about him
1: oh, did and it know?
0: completely changed my opinion of him 100% have you have you studied him
1: much you no know, I mean the fact that someone thinks they have a right to pick up a horse and a bunch of other people and conquer till like I don't know the eastern borders of Europe and like burn and butcher everyone and everything it's just like a complete moron he's I mean, like the lowest level of respect that I can have for someone uh, <laughs> yeah
0: that, that was my opinion of him that's yeah. actually why i started reading about i him. think
1: i'm related to him somehow because i my like <laughs> that side i come from kachar dynasty and kachars uh, if you trace them back there, there's some for, from the turks in the region and turks trace back to mongols to some extent
0: you gotta have a little gratitude for him yeah. then oh right no, no. I have a, <laughs> just I, was,
1: because i have somehow related to him doesn't mean i respect him
0: <laughs> yeah that's i get that he you know some of the really interesting things that he did. Like a lot of the battles or wars that he had mm-hmm. were actually not to his provoking. Mm-hmm. Um, he, when you really study him, he tried to trade with people mm-hmm. quite often and send envoys and say, "Hey, you're on our border. We would love to exchange goods mm-hmm. and ideas." He was actually super open-minded. Mm-hmm. Uh, his whole story was wild. Like I can go back to his like his origin story, and people were scared of them. And would kill his envoys, mm. and would say, "Yeah, right. Bring it." In a sense, you know, they would challenge him, and he's like, "Okay, this is what I Game do." On. Yeah. yeah, he as a kid. So the way they lived on the steps, S T E P P E S. You know that his territory. It's uh, I mean you like wealth there is not really wealth. It's like you have more people in your your family gang, your tribe, mm-hmm. and you have you know food on a semi regular basis, but the Lower folks in that way of living would literally feed off of rats, and you'd have three, four, five in your small band of people. And at any time, someone could come along and decide they want your wife, mm-hmm. you know. And so, uh, what really provoked him was uh, a group of people came along, and the the way they always uh, worked when you saw people coming to raid you and and take your wife, essentially or whatever goods you have, is the men ran off, and that was encouraged. The women would say, "Please go." This way we all live. Instead of if you stay and fight, you're going to die, right? Mm-hmm. Just make sense. Take off. So someone came in and, uh, you know, captured his wife, his, uh, his kids pushed him and his like one or two mm-hmm. friends away. And he said, I- this is not how we're supposed to live. Mm-hmm. He's like, there has to be a better way of living. So he like built up a little group of people, went and attacked them, completely changed the culture mm-hmm. of his people in a sense of he was the first person to actually like take care of warriors families when they died uh to create some sort of uh sense of not hierarchy but order in Mm -hmm. a sense like uh cultural um laws Mm -hmm. like hey this is the way we operate and so i I think most of history has them like vastly Uh misjudged yeah
1: that's not, I understand that to some extent. I mean, he had something that he could he could take over mm-hmm. most of the world of his time. But yeah. since the uh, but but um, but no matter what, that that attitude of uh, brutality is not it's not up with my aesthetics. You know, it's just like uh, it's yeah. like the it might be necessary sometimes. I get it, but but when you take it to half of the world of your time, it's just I, I, I don't see the point. Of that, you know, yeah. Uh, uh, I think it was more than that. He had some deep, deep. I
0: think so. Uh, yeah.
1: All right. I'm going to try to get you hooked on reading this one <laughs> book then.
0: Don't let me forget that Ray Dalio book before you go Oh, yeah, that. right. Yeah, so we a, sure. Maybe I'll add Genghis Khan mm-hmm. on there, too, because yeah. you might be like, all right. <laughs> I
1: know, right. You end up going like,
0: this guy's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with you in a sense of...
1: Uh, it's important to distinguish, as you said, between like the um, the tactics that someone used and and the end results of what happened as the consequence of his actions. Yeah. I, I agree that the tactics, uh, there was something to it. I mean, he cannot take over the world, uh, even that like that world. That was like a very slow-moving, distant world, and he took over the whole part of it. But the end result, when I look at the end result, is not appealing to me, you know? yeah, yeah. And, and Persians have particularly grievances against him because they had this vast... Uh, uh, collections of arts and sciences which were all burnt down and like the country was like starving for hundreds of years as a result of mongol invasion so it's like a term that they use whenever bad something bad happens huh. or like at least it's not mongol invasion so it was like deeply rooted into the into the uh, so
0: I, and now i want to go learn more about that because most of the the reading i've done on him mm-hmm. uh is that he actually like collected and kept those things and transferred them between cultures and that's mm. how he ended up being so prolific in war was he was like very open to ideas yeah. arts
1: huh. well maybe he did it with some that's why he got recorded the things that he burned were not yeah. ever recorded right but it's like a famous thing that land by land he moved it's like the red army the soviet they, union did they the
0: did burn crops and things like they burned everything yeah.
1: they burned the libraries they like tortured and raped and it was, it was very very bad thing in the psyche of the people in that region the that's, mongol invasion
0: it's not good yeah that's not okay
1: <laughs> if you talk about a little more i'll get into fight with you <laughs> no i
0: i no it's uh it's it's good I'm you know I, you. <laughs> I think it's one of the saddest things reading about mm-hmm. uh physics too is there were two things that really stood out to me one is uh Democritus. Mm-hmm. like we don't have his writings mm-hmm. because of you know christian mm-hmm. pillaging and destruction of information and then uh, there's another uh, physicist from the, you know, communist era
1: mm-hmm.
0: and he was jailed mm-hmm. and killed at a very young age when mm-hmm. he was working on some brilliant things. And, you know, right now there's a strong obsession or magnetism towards communism mm-hmm. and people go, you know, oh, they, they didn't do it right the first time or that's not what we mean by that. Mm-hmm. It was like it was super destructive. Any
1: form of central centralized power is like super destructive. So people must be always mindful of that. The first and second generation might be good; uh, <laughs> there might be competent rulers, and like, but uh, it'll start like exponentially decay <laughs> in yeah. the wrong direction.
0: We're yes. sitting in the middle of that right now.
1: Whenever power realizes that it's not um, that it doesn't need to justify itself anymore, that's just like recipe for terror.
0: Hmm. Do you have any good examples of that? Like recent ones? Oh, like th-
1: look, just look at the, throughout the history of humanity. I mean, yeah. All the, like wars and destructions and tyranny and dictatorship and all of that is because a group of people think that they have power and they don't need to justify it. Look at look at the Catholic Church during like the medieval ages and all of the, the church like the religious institutions might be very scary too because they think they get their authorities from God and they don't need to justify them to anyone. Um, but in general, any form of centralized power, which does not uh, does not see itself, uh, um, does not, um, how should I put it, any centralized power which thinks it does not need to justify itself uh, in any shape or form is an absolute recipe for, for disaster coming up. Uh,
0: yeah, well, where do you think we come from?
1: <laughs> Good point. Uh, well, I was like uh, my late teens. I read all these like. <clears throat> romantic and moral philosophers of how like we're so lonely and we're like humanity against everything else. And like, there's no point to life. And like, I don't know the existentialist, right? Like the point is to create your point in life and stuff, the things of that sort, which are val- valuable when you read them, but they used to make me very sad because they, they, I don't know, they pointed out this disconnect between man and nature. Um, uh, and I think the most, uh, Again, one of the most beautiful discoveries of physics in the last century was that, uh, first of all, we come, all come from stars. Uh, every element in our body, is, the majority of the element in our body was formed at the core of the stars or when they were exploding, and this happened long enough uh, and rapidly enough that it spread to the Earth and we got formed through evolution and things of that sort, but... Um, yeah, we, we look at these stars in the night sky and we think they're very far away and we can never reach them, but we literally come from them. So we're stars looking at stars, uh, or looking back at our ancestors in a in sense. But if you go even farther than that, um, you go back to the very beginning of the Big Bang and it's like this, the, the sea of particles interacting all in the same temperature trying to like... Uh, uh, Thermalize and like find structure in one way or another, and try to uh, stop the extreme rapid expansion and 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 and, uh, and and high energies. But if you go even farther back to the places that we uh, as back as we can tell with modern theoretical physics, uh, we were just all pure energy. Uh, so, where did we come from? From a little bit after a singularity, which was pure high energy, rapidly expanding state. That's where we come from. That's wild. That's, you know, what's behind that singularity? Well, that's my job to figure out. So, like, <laughs> have this podcast <laughs> in a couple of years. Hopefully, I have an answer.
0: <laughs> oh, man. And you're, you know, at, at your age, too, you're 23. Mm-hmm. 23. Uh, one thing that's been fascinating is some of these physicists that seem to be their. The early twenties were kind of their their breakthrough mm-hmm. years. Is that pretty common?
1: Mm, not really. Well, maybe I don't know, like twenties to thirties are like yeah, like there's a whole range. Uh, mm-hmm. um, yeah, like Newton came up with things, but I don't think there's an, any age for that. Um, the the consistency of passion is, mm. is is a common theme, but but the age, which at which the idea is like bear fruit I don't think that's that's a common theme uh, actually the main theories were people come up with in their 40s or so uh, like Einstein came up with general relativity in his late 30s and Maxwell came up with his equations in his late 30s yeah but age is just a number right um, that's good I, the consistency of passion is like a true quality which which must be shared between all physicists but when and where it happens you never know yeah
0: it's good because we sometimes as folks mm-hmm. get older they get you know we start to know so much mm-hmm. and i put no in air quotes that we it gets challenging to figure out what we don't know and so you mm-hmm. have to maintain this malleability mm-hmm. with thinking you know if you're talking about the stars here i'm just I was smiling because you know probably even before yesterday if i looked out at the stars i would have thought of them as this far away place mm-hmm. and now i i'm asking myself things like wait a second you know, as I'm learning about these little bits and pieces, is there actually not really any distance between the manifestation that I am and the stars? Because there's no actual, distance. you know, space or distance. Mm-hmm. It's literally space is a form of connection, mm-hmm. right?
1: That's well great. played.
0: <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that is that accurate?
1: Yeah, I think so. I, th- I think the distance that we feel is like, uh, um. I might call it delusion of our mind. That one might be too harsh. I I don't mean it in like a colloquial term, but in like a literary term that it's like a projection of our mind with regards to external objects. Um, The distance that we have uh, with the stars is minuscule compared to the distance between galaxies. Uh, It might seem very large compared to the subatomic distances. It's like minuscule compared to the galaxies. Which which frame of reference do you pick? <laughs> uh, maybe you say it depends on my mood. <laughs> yeah, uh, But uh, yeah, like the, the notion of distance, a meter, 10 meter, 100 meter, meter—is just uh, uh, not really meaningful in an objective sense. Um, the far you go, you just reach the causal horizon of the universe, which is a distance in which the expansion of the universe equals the speed of light. Uh, it doesn't mean there is nothing beyond that. Actually, there is, but uh, it just means that we cannot communicate and discale scale with that, uh, with, with, with whatever lies over there. And our causal horizon is different from the causal horizon of a person in the next galaxy. Uh, there is is a little bit shifted, so they can see things that we don't see. Uh,
0: you said you said that so confidently. The person in the next galaxy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I might have some knowledge that you guys don't. <laughs> to- what do
0: you mean by that? Yeah, no, I'm just messing. <laughs> <laughs>
1: As physicists, we try to like, we really like to say that. Yeah, What if you were on the other galaxy, a person in the other universe? Mm. Yeah, it's like this. By that, we mean like a mathematical system on another galaxy. We mm. try to personify mathematical uh, systems.
0: <laughs> and statistically, it just would make sense that there is at this point.
1: Should be something, yeah, but... Um, even looking very hard at it, like UCSD has a very good group on detection of exoplanets, um, and detecting like I know, all sorts of frequencies from the night sky and seeing whether it fits with the um, theoretical predictions of our models, or is it like some sort of a biologically created uh, signal? We haven't seen anything yet. Once in a while, the government comes out with the videos that they say, "Oh my God, look at this thing moving so fast!" And um, I, I haven't seen enough evidence for it yet. Hopefully, sometime soon, it feels good to no Uh, there's another intel i don't i say i don't know It depends on their nature uh, they're Mm. they're violent or peaceful (laughs) probably if they were violent they would not have survived they would have destroyed each other but uh hopefully they're
0: not kind of what we're doing right now
1: well (laughs) are we
0: peaceful or are we violent
1: oh i don't know we're like a confused (laughs) mix of the two Mm. we're very moody creatures i guess Uh, We undergo peaceful times and people get bored And they're like, okay, what did all this peace bring us? Uh, Let's do something new And they start wars And they get tired of fighting And they're like, okay, what did all this war brought us? And then they enter the peaceful era And in a sense, it's like a pendulum Which the peaks are getting higher and higher Uh, The violent parts are becoming more violent The peaceful times are becoming more peaceful But um, hopefully there are always a few people who save us <laughs> yeah
0: i have i carry this belief and, and I, i'd like to think that most of my beliefs are pretty flexible mm-hmm. you know like i carry them in a sense of with conviction mm-hmm. but if something that makes sense you know invites itself in it's like all right you know i'm open to change it and when you think about we've talked about religion a little bit you know good i think of god versus satan or good versus evil mm-hmm. But this idea of peaceful or violent, like there's this yin and yang, black and white. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everything around us, to my understanding, carries a a positive charge or a negative charge. Mm -hmm. You know, right now in our current era, we don't talk as much about God versus Satan and the normal pop culture trending conversations. But we talk about positive vibes, like good vibes and bad vibes. And it's to me, that's another, you know, construct or way of saying like. What are you focusing on what are you inviting? What are you creating something with a negative charge mm-hmm. or something with a positive charge
1: charge being like a moral uh mm. symbol, right um,
0: but also uh at a you know level of the energy mm-hmm. and the uh what what was the word you use not vibration um, per perturbation perturbation yeah. yeah right I mean, is that a fair? Could you say that goes positive negative?
1: I don't. I don't like to think of things in that way. I think putting, you know, like, a positive-negative grid or, like, good and bad grid on things limits our understanding of them. Um, mm-hmm. Nietzsche in his has a very famous book called Beyond Good and Evil in which he he, he advertises for a totally new moral system which goes beyond uh, good and evil, and he talks about the fact that good and evil are, like, ancient myths. Uh, um I don't think anything particularly nature is good or bad. Uh like uh to me, know, a dry desert might be considered bad compared to alpine uh forests in Bavaria, but uh or like I don't know good rich coffee is good compared to like a crappy acidic coffee that they over roast. Uh but nothing in nature is particularly good or bad. Things are.
0: There's a neutral, as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, nature is beyond judgment um, in a sense. Um, she's like glowing in her perfection of harmonies, and like things are created and annihilated, and and, and things take hundred different forms and shapes at different times. Um, I think um, good or bad is an innately human instinct to put put on things. Uh, it might be considered necessary to take actions, but I think we must be considerate of the fact that uh, it is a product of our mind. Uh, I think that that could give a lot of ease to people if, if they think of it like that. It might actually make you kind of sad because, like, I don't know, children dying, an innocent child dying in a war. According to nature, that's neither good nor bad. It's just how things are, but. According to me personally, that's like extremely tragic. Uh, but I think we should be mindful of the fact that good or bad is like uh, it's like a perspective that human mind gives to things, and that has helped me a lot in coping with emotional difficulties. Uh, whenever I'm like I'm going through some uh, emotionally tumultuous or challenging times, I. I, I I start thinking about the things that I'm studying in the stars and galaxies and how I'm so uh, very little compared to those and very big compared to subatomic particles. Like <laughs> I once did the calculation that roughly uh, uh, the ratio of the age of the universe, which is roughly 14 billion years to my lifetime, will be the same ratio as my lifetime to the lifetime of a subatomic particle. So according to subatomic particle, I have been like, as old as its universe, by the way we were defining it for ourselves. So in the grand scheme of things, I think that I would help to realize that things in nature just are, and we can study the beauty of them, and that the good and bad are just a projection of our minds. Uh, well, it becomes important when you're taking actions. Because in order to act, you need to know what's right and wrong, at the, at least at that moment. Uh, going back to the initial uh, discussion we had about physicists being so fixated on certain postulates, it's because of that need for action. Uh, when you make action, you need to be sure of some sort of a ground in order to move. Um, and I think when we're taking action, we have to be very... When we're defining good and bad, we have to... Uh, be flexible and as reasonable as possible. Because at the end, good and bad are like deeply emotional topics. Um, so we just have to try to nurture our taste, uh, nurture our aesthetics, and hope for the best, I think.
0: Yeah, we even... You don't have different ideas on what's good or bad with Genghis Khan.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you say that, babe, one more time. <laughs> I'm,
0: I'm asking for it. I'm going to get beat up over here. Uh, <laughs> well,
1: I'm not going to do that. So you play Jiu Jitsu. So I'm, I'm a little bit afraid of it. Yeah. I was joking, right? <laughs> no, it's good. It is.
0: It's, it's true, though. Even, you know, from neighborhood to neighborhood, city mm. to city, you know, parts of the U.S., obviously, you know, vastly different cultures between countries Mm -hmm. you go one place and they're you know boiling a frog and you ask someone else and that's evil that's terrible but for Mm -hmm. that person that's like sustenance that's part of their Mm -hmm. their lifestyle so it's 100 um, Mm percent a filter that we look through to decide
1: yeah and that brings us to a very important point that because it's so subjective you have to take it very very seriously because it's deeply you what you regard as good and bad is deeply you. Uh, so you have to work very hard and meticulously in order to nurture and cultivate your notion of good and bad, uh, or whatever lies beyond that. Uh, people, people think, okay, subjective. So like, I don't know, let's just not pay attention to it. It's not worth it. No, the things that are truly subjective are truly important because they're deeply you. Uh,
0: I think this is part of what's happening with the, you know, I call it screeching conversation. Like when I think of the Mm -hmm. emotional uh, mismanagement that's happening right now between people just sort of screaming at each other, Mm -hmm. whether it's, it seems like it's mostly online. Like Mm -hmm. I have yet to sit with somebody uh, anywhere and talk about some of these really divisive topics, whether it's, uh, you know, like LGBTQ rights Mm -hmm. or politics or these things, or. Or, uh religion like these mm-hmm. things that we were taught not to talk about mm-hmm. right and that, I think that's part of how we got here was the for the last many decades in the US it was you know, you're not supposed to talk about these mm-hmm. things at the dinner table so people had to work on their own beliefs on their own or in private and now you have these echo chambers online but uh the you know what you're talking about with like neutral thinking mm-hmm. it, it takes a certain strength of emotion to even get to the point where you can do that and you have to feel i think psychologically safe and not everybody does or they don't grow up in a household where that Mm -hmm. gets fortified or built
1: precisely and that's the job of educational system to do that this is like one of my favorite quotes from aristotle he's like the most important mark of an educated mind is to entertain an idea without believing it um i think people rarely do that uh, I want to say these days, but I mean, that's the only days that I've seen. I don't know how were people, 200 years ago, they were probably worse. I, know. I hope they were worse. I hope <laughs> we have been making some progress. But um, um, yeah, that's just a really serious issue that people, the moment, the moment they're, they entertain a thought, they think they must believe in it. And therefore, when they entertain a thought of an opposite nature to what they are used to, they feel extremely uncomfortable. And feel threatened. Um, one one good thing that reading philosophy could could uh, implicitly teach you is that you read all these great minds talking about the same thing. They have a vastly different opinion on it, but they're all very justified in their own system. So you just have to uh, find some sort of a synthesis between your understanding of I don't know David Hume and John Locke and like uh, like talking about the same thing from vastly different perspectives. Uh, It teaches you to entertain different ideas without necessarily believing in them, but trying to see through, uh, what's really behind it. Uh, and as a, as, as a scientist, that's, you said, like, how do you uh, cope with the unknown? That's, and I said, it's a fun part of it as a science. That's the really, really fun part of it. You believe in something which you don't know. It's true. You entertain it, you develop it, you come up with numbers, you never know whether it's true or not unless you sit down and have the have the passion and discipline to follow it through. Even though you never know whether it's right or wrong, I mean, your whole night might go up in the air uh, in the morning when you realize your calculations were wrong. But that's just a part of the process.
0: Do you you know? There's a an interesting data point that mm-hmm. like a disproportionate number of billionaires have dyslexia. Like a, a crazy high percentage. and I one of the things that makes me think of is, you know, did they did that help them in a sense of they were having trouble reading and they had to find other ways to learn? but I mm. guess the the question is, do you believe that people can build an intellect to learn and read, or do you think some people just are naturally equipped and ready for it??
1: Mm. Don't think reading is. Uh, particularly natural. If it was natural, we would have done it since the very beginning of humanity, right? It took a lo- long time for us to, like, first of all, write and record and then read. It's, it's a relatively recent thing compared to the age of the human civilization. Um, but but I think the urge to know and to think is an innate ability. Uh, and, and reading just channels it in a certain way, which... which people can communicate throughout ages. I, I don't know of any other form of communication Im- amongst people from different ages besides like the things that get recorded like art pieces, but most of all for intellectual discussions, um, books. Uh, so I don't think there is anything particularly natural about it. I think it's just something very precious about it that we have this, all these great voices murmuring, uh, from the ancient past to this day and trying to tell us things and it would be just a poor taste to not relish it or, or appreciate it. Right? I mean, you can, you can, on a Friday night, you can go and like kind a party till the morning or you can just I know, read Marcus Aurelius or like David Hume and these people spend their lifetime They extremely intelligent, uh, people who have stood the test of time with their ideas and their the rigor of their thoughts and observations and they try to shrink down their whole mental and living experience into these passages in front of you and you can buy it for like 10 15 20 dollars mm, that's <laughs> uh, crazy right yeah. no one buys it <laughs> that's, that's even crazier for it it's uh people appreciate when you buy it and talk about it but they rarely take the effort to do it themselves because uh i know there are many different reasons for that
0: well it's 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 effort it's mental willpower i mean when i look at you know, the way I grew up, I, mm-hmm. I really barely read and, and barely even went to school. Mm-hmm. But I remember one of the books, you mentioned existentialism earlier, that I, looking back, realized, you know, maybe even just now I realized it had such a profound impact on mm-hmm. me was The Stranger
1: yeah, by Albert Camus. Camus. Yeah.
0: yeah. And, uh, you know, the, reading that, you know, I think it's the idea really that God is either dead or asleep, mm-hmm. right? Like nobody's here to save you type of thing. It was kind of dark and broody, and, and I really related to it as a teenager, the way I was mm-hmm. living. Um, but I also think it helped me create this space of observance with thinking and life events mm-hmm. that helped me develop some of the neutral thinking. Mm-hmm. So that instead of being really caught up in the whatever's happening for you know a reaction, I learned to respond a little bit better. And I think that book had a profound impact on that. Mm. Um, even though I changed my beliefs in many ways since and it evolved mm-hmm. it just gave me the the seed
1: mm-hmm.
0: of the idea of events um, being different than uh, you know the, the case creating that space yeah to to observe
1: mm-hmm. does that make sense? yep
0: yeah but we re- reading takes effort you know I had to, I had to it was like a muscle mm-hmm. when I first started doing it it made me very sleepy yeah <laughs> and i'd read a page and fall asleep mm-hmm. and now it's to the point where you know we used to tell kids once upon a time like oh they just have he just has his, his head in the books all the time right cuz uh you also need to take action as you mm-hmm. mentioned but it's easy to get lost in all these things so you mm-hmm. have to it's good degree create the willpower Is to there get it's a very but...
1: relaxing pursuit, too. I think that's one part that people yeah. fall asleep, and, and then mm. the busyness of our day to day lives these days. And when you start reading, you feel extremely relaxed in the first few minutes or like first 20 30 minutes. That's why you fall fall asleep. <laughs> uh, yeah, I take some of my family members to concerts when, when it gets uh. After a little bit, they start falling asleep, but I, I don't get offended by that. <laughs> I, I think it's a good sign that classical music just relaxes you so much that you feel so safe to fall asleep. <laughs> I think it's the same thing with reading. I, I've heard that from so many people. that They're like, Shasha, when I read, I just fall asleep. I'm like, well, good. I <laughs> keep reading. <laughs> yeah, Eventually you get past that stage. Um, <laughs> yeah.
0: That was my start with it. I I believe I told you I was on the board of directors Mm -hmm. for an orchestra and choral society. And I felt so terrible. But the first time I went to a live show, I totally fell asleep. And I woke up and I'm like, oh, maybe nobody nobody saw that. (laughs) At least
1: you didn't snore. Some people.
0: I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not confident whether I did or not. But not. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It is neat. And it it feeds the mind, you know, the, mm-hmm. the idea of inputs and outputs, whether you're reading or listening to classical classical music, you're taking in good, uh, inputs. What, you know, how does that from a, from a perspective of the work that you do, do you see any correlation between the energy or the types of activities we have in, and really our nature behavior and outputs?
1: Oh, definitely. Um, um, yeah, well, one thing which is really important is for, to realize that thinking and perceiving and like realizing these are a way of life. Uh, you cannot do them uh, whenever you, they cannot be wished. You know, they must. They must be. Uh, you must constantly do them as much as you can, and let let them do their thing. But the habit of doing them. Constantly is what truly matters, uh, uh, but I I totally think I think we are what we do and we what we give our attentions to. So uh, it's, it's very vital to be to to spend your attention wisely and on, and on, and on, on the type of people that you spend time with, type of music that you listen to, type of entertainments that you have, uh because it might not seem like it at that moment, but ultimately those are what make you, you. Uh,
0: is there an equation for
1: that? The <laughs> <laughs> Equation of the heart, Ah, which is still remained to be discovered through love. Yeah. We have to figure mm. it out. Yeah.
0: If you could, I was super terrible at algebra. I actually got in trouble once because I wasn't paying attention in class mm-hmm. and the test came and I had answered some of the questions properly, but I made up my own way for doing, doing it? it. That's
1: hilarious. Yeah,
0: and she held me after class and like went through it and wanted me to show work. And I said, I just started showing her. And she's like, well, it works for that one, but it won't work all the time. Mm. You know, and I was like, well, I just was thinking really hard, but could you, is it possible? This is where my my knowledge is very limited or non-existent mm-hmm. to have equations for the output of sound energy, the output of uh, or the input of reading energy, like mental energy, mm-hmm. things like that, and actually come up with a, a formula for energy in mm-hmm. versus energy out for
1: activities? Probably um, whatever exists, uh, you must be able to come up with some sort of an equation for it, uh, huh. given the right amount of assumptions and the right knowledge of the state of that system. But uh, as a physicist, me. Physicist, mean talking. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> I like it. Uh, so the, the problem with the uh, with the mind is it's too complex, and our knowledge of its state at that moment is extremely extremely limited. Um, mm. that, that's what makes it very difficult to come up with equations as of now. Uh,
0: There's a book called The Miracle Equation by a guy named Hallowrod. I've, I've actually personally never read it, mm. but I just have absorbed a lot of it from people around me in, in leadership and what is it about? Uh, so it's about uh, he had cancer and accident, like some traumatic mm-hmm. life things. And his mind just was very, you know, he was looking for a way to create peace and positivity and like just continue his life in a good way. And it really was about a morning routine, mm. you know, and thinking of inputs and outputs, a form of meditation, journaling, music, movement. I'm not sure what all is in there. Mm-hmm. I know those are components of it that would put his, you know, self in mm-hmm. essence in a really good place to go out and build good things in the day. Mm-hmm. You know, basically, I now I'm thinking, you know, those are activities that change the structure of your energy to feel better, so that you can go and, and feed that into your oh, life. Oh,
1: definitely, yeah. Our mind is constantly looking for inputs and is constantly looking to give outputs and. It's very important how we feed it and how we express that output. Both both of them are very important, um, and that's the job of ed- educational system to to guide us in that way. But but ultimately, you know, like all all of education boils down to self education. So people must respect themselves enough to do that to themselves. Comes out of self respect, I think.
0: Yeah, that's that's a learned for for many. Um, what do you think of our Education system right now in the U.S.
1: Um, I think so. I can I can talk about like uh, before college, after college, <laughs> and PhD. Uh, <laughs> since I've got I'm going through all of that. I'm going through the last stage, but I've been through the other parts. I think uh, what we what we focus on a lot is. Uh, Unique personal expressions and, and some sort of freedom of thought and freedom of action, which is necessary uh, for young people, especially for people before college, in high school and middle school. And uh, I do think we provide enough resources in most parts. Uh, I think the main issue that we have is that we provide the space for free uh, free thought and free expression and all those valuable and precious things, but we don't... F- we don't try to help people to culture it, uh, cultivate it uh, properly. Uh, I think our educational system leaves people a little bit too much on their own without giving giving them proper food for thought. Not to indoctrinate people, but to to give them enough enough material to work with on their own. Um, I think that's that's one thing which is probably missing um, in college. I think. Uh, everyone is in some sort of a rush and they just want to like get some sort of quantitative approval and then to just move on, which is very cheap. I think, I think the whole, the way our whole educational system is formed is like getting grades and especially UCs or like quarter, but quarter systems. I see some people turning in homework every week and having midterm final. There's no time to think. I mean, you're taking like a calculus class or physics class. Um, and I have TA for these classes and I've taught some of them, uh, there's just no time to think for people. They're just in rush from one assignment and one exam to another, and they're overwhelmed and stressed. And the moment they have a little bit of free time, instead of thinking, just want to go and do something wild to de-stress, uh, which is very, very not good. This is not how educational system support is supposed to be. Uh, it's supposed to good educational system will make you think about the things that you're studying in your free time, not, not treat you in a way that you want to run away from them the moment you have a weekend or a long weekend or something. Um, uh, In PhD, um, um, it's very bipolar. In certain classes, it's the way the true education should be. It's like discussion-based. Everyone is so involved. Everyone thinks about the topics all the time before the classes. But in some classes, especially like the introductory, the basic classes that everyone has to take, and I'm not sure whether it's the same in all institutions, but it's certainly the case with regards to most institutions that I've been in touch with. Uh, I, I call it indoctrination by bolt and hammer. They try to like shove a load of material into your head in the first year. Um, I shared that with one of my friends, and he's... he's his name is Sydney. and he's very funny and intelligent. He was like, Shasha, is that really the case? Because indoctrination requires the subjects to take in the doctrine. We're not even doing that. It was like, <laughs> even worse. Oh, man. Uh, but yeah, uh, certain classes are a true disaster, I think. And I've I, uh, I, I talked to people, uh, to a committee which organizes that in my school, chaired by Professor Patrick Diamond. Um, and they have made some very, very beautiful changes in last year. They just needed someone to tell them because they're not they, they're, they don't, they're not in those classes. These are like reputable professors who are coming up with these programs and they're not in touch with the day-to-day detail of these classes and they just needed someone who is taking those classes to take the courage and go and talk to them. And I didn't take the courage. I just really liked Professor Diamond and I went to his office and had coffee with him once a week and chatted and over time he realized these issues and then once he told me to come and talk to the committee about it. But... Uh, but the good thing is like people are open to listen and they, they make changes, uh, which, is, which is very nice. Which is very precious. Something very precious about our, our educational system compared to most countries. Uh, yeah. But ultimately, as, as my advisor always says, George Fuller, he's like, Sasha, ultimately the education boils down to self-education. I mean, uh, this educational system has this conundrum within it that those who want to learn will learn no matter what. Those who don't want to learn will never learn, no matter what. So, I've thought a lot about how. So, given this, how could we come up with any educational system? I think the only role that educational system should play is to inspire people to learn on their own, to to excite them and inspire them enough that they are they're, they, they're ready to take the effort to to go and learn on their own, whatever topic they that they get interested in.
0: Yeah, even if it's just one passion, right? Mm-hmm. If you love paper, like go and learn everything you can about paper, but, but pursue it, mm-hmm. figure it out. I see in, in business, you know, what happens in business is, is you're talking about mm-hmm. uh, kids getting crammed with homework or just people, I shouldn't say kids because mm-hmm. it's all over. And then you don't have time to, to think about it. I, mm-hmm. I see in, in business where uh, companies will, they'll, you know, sort of fight something new or a change or an idea or just not acknowledge it. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, this makes sense now. And then the decision is made instantly when there's all the pressure of people, and we're moving fast, and we've got a timer on this. Mm. And then they implement something, and you just might miss some things, or you mm-hmm. don't have the opportunity to. Uh, let's go back to that phrase: "Let it cook. Let it cook for a little bit." Mm-hmm. Right. So that is that is really significant. I like to. I, I run some training programs, and I, I actually purposefully create space to. Slow down. Mm-hmm. Read back through things. Challenge people to ask questions and think about what they, uh, you know, really think about it. Think about thinking, metacognition, right? Mm-hmm. Think about what you're thinking about with that, and let's have a, a conversation because you're generally going to get better advancement. You know, be able to move forward better when people can fully understand why or how something's working.
1: Mm-hmm. I think this. Uh this whole movement that we're going through of like constantly performing and giving an output and performing and giving an output and producing something is, is very wretched and poorly tasted. I think it's more more uh, more uh, more becoming of like AI automation or like electrical engines, not not of human spirit and mind. Uh, uh, as going back to what I said earlier, it's like about the inhale and exhale. You know, you just need some time to process through things. Uh, but when you're funding something and when you're working on a project, uh, you have a, you have this pulse that you need to follow. And I think the, each person, their mind has their own pulse, and it becomes very difficult to make uh, take any action. That's that's why the companies like force things through. Uh, I would expect that from companies, but not from academic institutions, right? I mean, the, the research institutes, their pure, their sole job is to fund and nurture these thinkers so they have enough time to think and come up with valuable ideas, not to just perform, perform, perform. But unfortunately, like, academia is falling into that trap too. Uh,
0: I, I think businesses should operate more like that in a sense of, you know, it made sense when you were manufacturing boots and there were only five different companies that made boots that you mm-hmm. wanted to put the most out so people could buy the most. Mm-hmm. But you, you know, must, in order to stay relevant mm-hmm. or just to do our best, create space for thinking, mm-hmm. reflection. Fair enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, and academics, it is interesting. You know, I I feel for teachers in a classroom with 30 kids that were never given the... Maybe emotional tools or thinking tools or they themselves, you know, don't have that space to be their own little miniature Socrates in the classroom, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, That's got to be tough.
1: Mm -hmm. And even in research, I mean, like, they're constantly rushing to publish as many papers as possible. It's not like you're not trading oranges. This is like scientific progress. The number of papers is not as important as the quality of papers, Mm -hmm. Uh, but for funding purposes and for, like, I don't know, if they want to get a job in a university, they have to constantly look at how many papers you have published, which which uh, collaborations you have been on, uh, how much money can you bring, and things like that. So it's very, like, business-oriented these days.
0: Yeah, that's... Uh
1: it's <laughs> very in, funny because I do not expect that at all. But it's it turns weird. Out.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I worked in a research lab at UC Davis mm-hmm. and the head professor was leaving for that reason. He said there's just they just want us to look at the data a certain way to get more funding, to mm-hmm. publish more work, to get more funding, mm-hmm. to do this, to get more funding and he was like, I'm I'm done working at a research institute. He's like, I'm gonna learn basically on my own mm-hmm. and teach, but that's rough because the things that we publish And how and why we do it have a a massive impact Mm -hmm. on the way we're thinking about things or believing things, too. So there's uh, obviously some really great things that come out of it, but also a dark side. Yeah, and
1: as a result, like you look at the scientific journals, like most of the papers are either wrong or or uninteresting or they never get cited for the same reason because people are just trying to publish, 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 and most of it is just not good work. It's like doing... That calculation there a little bit differently and publishing it or like I know looking at this from another slightly different perspective. Spending years doing that instead of like working on something completely new, Uh, but yeah, everything has its own.
0: Do you think maybe now in the world because of uh, technology and the access to putting out content over Mm -hmm. you know different channels of media or publishing a book? Do you think that has become maybe? more or closer in significance to research publishing
1: oh for sure yeah but also it's because i think physicists don't respect their uh their profession enough if they did it they would, they would have resisted the force but they don't <laughs> they just give in to the force and that's that's what happens yeah hmm.
0: what are some of the most exciting things you're working on right now
1: oh i'm working on three things uh, which uh, so I find all of them exciting, so let me go through all <laughs> of it is <laughs> One of it is like, uh, it's a continuation of my undergrad research, which I've been trying to find this. I've been trying to find um, the effect of the stars getting very close to us on the, on the comets orbiting the Earth, and eventually uh, answering the question of whether there is any astronomical route for the geologic events that we have been observing. And I've found well, some.
0: What's an example?
1: Like I don't know, the periodic mass extinctions of the Earth, or um, the original water on the Earth, or things of that sort. Hmm. And I've found some very very exciting results, which I'm not going to say now until I publish <laughs> it. am working on publishing the paper; it's taking forever, but. Yeah, I found a very exciting star and I found a very deep connection between the average number of stars coming by and, and the effect that they have on the structure of the comets, specifically comets in the Oort cloud. Uh, Oort cloud is this uh, spherical shell of trillions of icy objects uh, very, very far from the Earth. It's like uh, 10 to like 100,000 times farther uh, than the Earth from the sun. So they're very f- way far out. Um, they're a remnant of the origin of the formation of solar system. Uh, wow. So I found some exciting connections there. Uh, That's this, uh, my undergrad research. What I'm working on right now as for my for my PhD, uh, there, there are two topics. I'm on the uh, Simon's Array uh, team working on... They had, there's this big telescope in Chile which, which is a radio telescope It observes in the radio frequency which is below the visible light and in infrared uh, And they have been looking at Crab Nebula, which is the beautiful picturesque thing that you see when you look up nebula on Google. It's like this very beautiful colorful uh, explosion. At the very core of that there is this small star which rapidly rotates and pulses. And the pulsation is pretty fixed for whole magnitudes of f- frequencies, for order of frame, ranges of frequencies. So they use it for calibration. Um, and yeah, I've been seeing some exciting uh, pulses there, which I cannot talk about <laughs> again, <laughs> because it's in, the, it's in the middle of getting published and everyone is very excited about. But mm. the, I'm, I'm on the team trying to analyze, to tr- trying to, I'm there as a theoretician and as, like, a person who analyzes the data for the the sake of different theories, uh, of different signatures that are needed to be observed. And that's with Professor Keating and with Professor Fuller. I'm working on um, dark matter, specifically how it affects the stability of stars and the formation of heavy stars, like black holes and compact objects like neutron stars and white dwarfs and things of that sort. So... I would say my, my current research is very dark matter involved. I'm trying to uh, understand what's the nature of dark matter and how it contributes to structure formation in the universe.
0: And how would you describe dark matter in a way that mm. that I could understand? Because mm. I'm I'm like, what is this stuff? I've yeah. looked at it, I've tried to think about it, and how yeah. to wrap my head around it.
1: Um uh, <laughs> uh, the way I put it is like, it's a form of matter which does not interact with light for the following reason. Normal matter interacts with light because it's made out of charged particles like electrons and protons and in, in forming the nucleus and the atom. Uh, and whatever is charged interacts with light because light is electromagnetic wave and charges lead to electromagnetic fields. So whatever is charged interacts with the waves, uh, Uh, of light. That's why we can see them or scatter them or like uh, uh, interact with them
0: through light. They're turned on basically. Exactly, They're
1: they're responsive to light, to photon. Hmm. Uh, Dark matter is a form of matter. How do we know it's a matter? Because it has gravity uh, and it has a density distribution. We can, we can track how much of it is, how much of it is at different points around galaxy or in galaxy clusters. But the thing is, it does not interact with light directly. So that gives us the clue that it's not made out of charged particles. Whatever it's made out of, it's, it's like a uh, it's charged neutral particle.
0: So we know it's there. hmm we don't know what it's made out of. Mm-hmm. Huh.
1: I wouldn't like That's to crazy. say we don't know what it's made out. We have too many different ideas about what it's made out of. Every physicist literally comes up with a new uh-huh. way of looking. But the issue right now for the experimentalists is to put constraints on what are the possib- possibilities for dark matter. But in a sense, you can say, yeah, we don't know what it's made out of.
0: Do you know what some of the top like uh, choices Candidates? are? Candidates, yeah. yeah.
1: Um, uh, there's this particle called axion, which is... Uh, a prediction of uh, grand unified theories and supersymmetries and things of that sort, uh, which is a very light neutral particle. Um, that's that's one candidate. The other one is uh, is the front that I'm I wish, wish to associate myself with because it was basically uh, uh, coined. The term was coined at UCI, my undergrad institution and the professors that I worked with. It's called self-interacting dark matter, which assumes that there's this whole dark sector made out of dark particles and dark forces, uh, just in the same way <laughs> that the normal normal matter is made out of normal matter and normal forces. There's a dark sector, which is made of dark particles and dark forces, and these particles interact. And they can form structures. So in principle, you, have, you can have dark galaxies, you can have dark stars, you can have dark everything uh,
0: we would just we wouldn't be able to see them with our current tools
1: but, but no not directly we, okay. indirectly we should be able to see them they their meaning like through their interaction with normal matter or through their okay. bending of light because they still have gravity so they bend space-time and light gets bended when it goes through it or through our cosmological simulations when we run the simulations from Big Bang till now uh, if we feed it this self- attracting dark matter models we we will see this dark structures in the simulation. Um,
0: I think it sounds like a parallel universe.
1: It is. It's, it's, it's in okay. a sense parallel universe, and there are some links between that universe and ours. And there are some signatures, which there are some key signatures that we must be able to see. The problem is the range of that signatures is so large, and experimentalists are trying to put constraint on that on that range. It's like eighty order of magnitude possibility. So they're trying to like. El- el- eliminate the spaces one by one or, like, try to find one.
0: If, if it's, you know, when I think of light and dark, just the terminology, mm-hmm. they seem like opposites. I mean, is yeah, there... Yeah, it's
1: not a good terminology for dark matter. I don't know who to you know, talk <laughs> about. So it's basically a transparent matter.
0: Okay, so it wouldn't be, in a sense, almost a mirror, mm-hmm. like a, a negative mirror no, of light. No. Okay. It that could would be, be easy in f- some
1: theories. Okay. It could be, like, the sym- symmetric counterpart of normal particles but that's just one theory uh, huh. that's one idea the other idea cold dark matter it says like it's just this other form of particle which which does not interact with itself and just sits there in the gravitational pool um, that was the main uh, belief in what dark matter is till recently because uh, when they start So, first of all, there are these huge cosmological collaborations to simulate the universe from Big Bang till now, given all the knowledge that we have about the laws of physics. They're called fire nodes. They're spread out throughout the U.S. Uh, All the major institutions have some fire nodes. Like UCSC has a very important fire node. UCI has a very, very famous fire node. Um, These simulate different aspects of the universe, and then they put them together in form of a larger picture of how the universe and the simulations look like, Then they compare it with real data. Uh, So far, we have done an excellent job reproducing the large-scale structures, the galaxy formations, the number of them, the diversity of them, uh, with the cold, dark matter. But uh, recently, people started zooming in and doing the simulations more in a more refined way on a larger structure on on a larger on a smaller scale sorry and some serious problems emerge with with cold dark matter uh we see too many of the things that we should not be seeing or certain things are not the way that we look at them and these could be remedied using the self-interacting dark matter that's how the whole literature came out came about with the with the fire note not with the the fire note at uci came later it was a theory uh approach which they were like okay i mean dark matter is the majority of matter in the universe normal matter interacts with itself why shouldn't we assume dark matter interacts with itself Mm. and they assume some sort of basic physics of it and they made some predictions and they made sense then they convinced the fire note at uci uh uh, uh run by professor bullock to to implement these ideas and it could solve so many of the important problems to some extent um Wow. Even though some people are still arguing against it, but I think the majority of literature is agreed that there's some sort of interaction. That's cold dark matter as it is called CDM. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't really do justice. Uh, so I'm on that front of self-interacting dark matter. And the exciting part is like the possibilities are like enormous. So I'm trying to look at specific signature of self-interacting dark matter and compact objects and compact objects are like extremely energetic uh, stellar objects which are like stars which are very massive right before they collapse into a black hole or or uh, what happens when stars explode into remnant remains and things of that sort so these are extreme astronomic environment I'm trying to look for that link between dark matter and normal matter in those extreme environments because when you observe them you must see some key signatures which are not explainable through uh, through uh, Normal theories. My my advisor is one of the pioneers of the notion of sterile neutrinos, which is a form of dark matter. It has a very unique signature of three and a half. It's it's a very unique spectrum when you look at the night sky, and two collaborations have seen that spectrum, and they could not have reproduced it with with the normal atomic theories but the next, they cannot clarify it yet to see whether it's an atomic theory or is a dark matter. So the next generation of X-ray telescopes like Athena and chrism and, uh, things of that sort, they're going to be, they're going to have much higher sensitivity so they can resolve it. And if it's like a spread out thing, it's a dark matter. If it's peaked, it's, it's just atomic line. Uh, So very exciting Mm -hmm. time. This is the time to study it because everyone is like, uh, uh, aimed to understand it. Uh, yeah you would be shocked to 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 uh, hear that some physicists and departments don't care about what it is or particularly know what it is they're fixated about things like small calculations for that atom in that corner of the universe but but majority the the mood is to to gear up and try to understand what it is because it's like ubiquitously everywhere hmm.
0: now you say everywhere is it now is there dark matter is it only in space off earth or we, do we have dark matter here?
1: Oh, we have it everywhere. No, we have it here, but Hmm. the density is very, very diffuse. Hmm. Um, actually I tried to do some stuff with my advisor to try to show the presence of dark matter in the solar system by observing the moons of Jupiter very, very accurately, because if there's dark matter as a Jupiter and its moons are drifting through the dark matter, you must see some small changes between the moons in front of Jupiter and the moons in the back of the Jupiter motion wise. Um, uh, it hasn't gone anywhere yet, but <laughs> there, <laughs> there are ideas about its presence uh, hmm. or I'm trying to see h- how might it contribute to comets hitting the earth hmm. if the dark matter is clumpy there's like a lot of it because there's lots of dark matter in the in the solar system mass wise but they're spread out to so the density or at least we think they're spread out uh, uh, some theories say it might not be spread out it might be in compact forms and that that have implications for. Uh, the rate right of comets hitting the Earth. Uh, so there are some fun discussions on that front. Uh, but yeah, it's it's, it's a mystery.
0: Uh, yeah, this idea that we can get blasted by an asteroid or meteor or comet, I guess I, I don't actually really know the definition of the difference of all three of them. Maybe it's a size or speed or what mm-hmm. it's made of.
1: You know? Comet and asteroid? Yeah. Yeah, to my understanding, asteroids are like rocky objects, okay. while comets are like icy objects.
0: Ah. So, yeah. I feel like your understanding would be way better than mine, so I'm going to ta- <laughs> take your word for that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And then what about a meteor? What's the difference
1: Meteor, there? I don't know. I think meteor is like... I think meteor is what we see in the night sky. It could be either.
0: just doesn't hit us or doesn't come towards us.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think it's just what the thing that starts glowing up as it's hitting. I think that's what we call meteor. But come in an asteroid, the difference is one is like rocky and big and massive. The other one is like icy.
0: And it it seems like there's sufficient evidence and conviction in the fact that, you know, they've landed on our planet before and it's had devastating consequences. Mm -hmm. And we sort of just go about our daily lives without thinking much about it. Is any of the work that you're doing, I mean, are these things that as we figure it out, as we think more about it, you know, we learn some things. Is that going to help preserve humanity?
1: Oh, for sure. Because the way that uh, um, we don't realize this, but the only way that the astronomical objects can directly interact with the earth besides the light that we see from them is through comets. Mm. Their their gravity can disturb the comets, and their comets could come and hit the Earth. So the the mediator between astronomical objects and Earth is comets and, and asteroids. So yeah, the the better we understand them, absolutely. I mean, the, the better the better chance of uh, being able to control that mediation, in, so so it doesn't lead to destruction.
0: Well, this is part of the reason we have folks. Uh, working on, mm-hmm. you know, colonizing other planets. It seems pretty important.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. way,
0: <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. I, I didn't check on time. Do you have a time limit? How are we doing?
1: I'm pretty good. I'm free till uh, one. So, okay. Um, we don't need to go that far.
0: Okay, so sweet. Yeah. So yeah. So I,
1: I a few go all day, so...
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you You shared earlier you... You know, would would sit and have discourse arguments with your with your dad. Uh, you've obviously been interested in in these types of things for a long time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Do you remember when or how you decided to make this just your, you know, I'd say your life's calling or whatever you'd like to call it.
1: Oh yeah, I was I was uh, I was little. I was like four or five. And- wow. And and my dad used to watch these documentaries by Brian Greene and Sean Carroll about like quarks and space time and inflation and strength theory, and I was that that was it. I knew, <laughs> I knew that's what I wanted to do. Wow. Uh, yeah, the, that's that's the oldest of memories that I have.
0: And you've shared a bit about painting and mm-hmm. and music. Uh, do you feel like these these things are all just you know? really tied together. Mm-hmm. It's part of you know, they, do they, you know, when you're playing the violin or doing art or, or, you know, working on uh, what you're working on, do, do you find that you learn from each of your things like they're they, in a way that they're, they're connected?
1: Oh, absolutely. I believe in the ultimate union of arts and sciences. Um, mm. I think any arts done right, is in itself a science in its objectivity and universality and any any science uh done right is is a piece of art and its beauty and uniqueness and details uh so no totally definitely yeah i think they, they all go deep down into our urge to know and our urge to express our thoughts and emotions huh.
0: yeah the you know Again, with my rudimentary uh, learning over here, one of the the ideas that I'm sort of hot on right now is I'm thinking about the connection uh, between science and life. Is and you can correct me if I if I you know misrepresent this, but when something is very small and it doesn't have enough significant mass, it is much more probabilistic in terms of like an electron just being there and not being there. You're almost mm saying it's a, you know, maybe, right? It's like half and half, like if it'll show up. But when something has enough significant mass, or I, I look at it in life as momentum or enough energy or, or weight to it, it's deterministic instead, right? You give something enough attention, you put in enough work on something, instead of going, oh, I hope this happens, you can actually be confident that it will. Mm-hmm. Is that a... I see you nodding your head.
1: It <laughs> <laughs> uh, could be thought of as some sort of inertia, right? The more mass you have and the more like momentum you have, the more inertia you have. Uh, the more tendency you have to keep your state. Hmm. Uh, that's what Newton discovered. The, the, he formulated it was discovered way before him but uh yeah in that sense i think it would make sense to put it that way hmm. if it's significant enough it'll prevail
0: but it's up to us to make it significant right oh yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's the whole point of life to make your emotions and the things that you to make your ideals significant enough and pursuing mm-hmm. them uh, Hmm. How else could Michelangelo paint Sistine Chapel or how else could Beethoven write his Ninth Symphony while he can hear a note, right? Uh,
0: have you been to the Sistine Chapel? Oh, yes.
1: Man. Beautiful.
0: It's been a while. I'd love to go back.
1: I have a funny memory with my dad going there because while we were trying to concentrate on the beautiful painting, someone in Italian was like shouting, Silence! silent because it was so crowded and they wanted to keep the silence but it was very funny that the police was like <laughs> constantly shouting that so yeah the creation of adam painting or the create birth of universe or whatever it's called the famous hand of god and hand of adam it's etched with this sound of silence <laughs> in italians to to in my man in my head uh yeah it's spew it's just wonderful
0: you uh, you think about the world in a very unique and and a special way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> it,
0: it, in a good way, it's okay. it's good. Yeah. And uh, you've talked a lot about emotions too. And you know, some folks, uh, whether it's math or science, there's sort of this uh, idea that you know, oh, so and so is an engineer and they're not really good with the emotional part. But you've managed to really uh, almost find a connectivity or, or relation between them. Do you find that? Is do you feel like that's unique in your field?
1: In my field? Yeah. Oh no. No. Oh yeah. Oh unique. <laughs> <laughs> I thought. I, yeah, I misunderstood your question. Um, I don't wish to say it's unique because it would be like. uninteresting praising of myself. That's not what I want to say. I want to say it's (laughs) like people either choose one or the other. Uh, uh, It's okay to give yourself a little praise. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, People often choose one or the other because uh, maybe they're looking for the easy way out or... It might be because they look for the easy way out or I I don't know how to put it. Yeah, I don't know how to put it. <laughs> People um from outside they look as two different two different things but but if you look at the two sides of the uh mental curiosity and emotional sensitivity if you look at them deeply enough they have the same root, and the root is um, the need to know and the need to express. Um, uh, you know, people I've, I've noticed they usually sacrifice one for the other. They either sacrifice their sensitivity for for their curiosity, or they sacrifice their curiosity for their sensitivity, but. Um, I cannot sacrifice anything. (laughs) myself. It's difficult sometimes, but it's worth every single second of it. Um, I I try to always uh, keep up both of them uh, and synthesize them because I think the most exciting ideas are born out of the two, out of very high degree of sensitivity towards things, both emotionally and mentally and a high degree of curiosity. Um, Yeah. People should not look for uh, easy life or a happy life. This this death. This like a very cold life. You sh- people should strive for meaning and be ready to put enough passion and uh, excitement in pursuing that meaning. Uh, I think so much of our modern life is like to to look for ease and comfort and like get a good job and like have a good like a relationship and like have good go and eat out and like have lots of entertainment about that that's this recipe for depression uh, i think the, on, the only true way to live is to strive for meaning i think victor frankl if i'm not mistaken put it in a book like the will to meaning or something
0: uh, Man, search for meaning
1: yeah uh, i think it's it to your list <laughs> <laughs> i think uh, one of my, my best high school friend adam lazarus he introduced me to victor frankl as I was struggling with Freud and Jung, he was like "Sho, there is this third psychoanalyst you can look into if you want uh but um i th- I think the, the urge to for meaning is is the one of if not the highest one of the highest uh levels of human pursuit, and people should take it seriously uh, You must have easy and happy enough of a life to make you." suitable for pursuing meaning people usually miss out on this latter part <laughs> they get they get like a happy and uh stable life then they forget why is that good for and they that's becomes very depressing
0: it does it's almost like it you know the excess of entertainment or the excess of leisure or
1: least see joylessness yeah
0: yeah because you're you're burying that little thing in there that's Been talking to you for a long time, Mm -hmm. and then when it does pop up, you go, "Oh my gosh, I'm." I've seen people do it at a young age. Oh my gosh, I'm 22. I can't believe I I waited this long, or Mm -hmm. 45, or 50, or you know, it's important.
1: Mm -hmm. Very important to the. It's never late to start. People like sometimes get dissuaded. They're like, "Oh no, I'm too old." No, you're never as uh, Emmanuel Kant puts it. It's it's never too old to become wise. Mm. and playful it's beautiful (laughs) yeah so i don't know i try to i try to sacrifice nothing as long as i can breathe (laughs) uh yeah
0: seems like you figured it out you know it's well
1: it seems like it (laughs) deep down it's very different (laughs) i think that's a part of it yeah
0: we're all trying to figure it out it's i one of my You know, mantras or or things that I work on with people is uh, this binary thinking of it's this or this. And what I'm hearing from you is, no, it's this and this, like, you know, in a sense, having your cake and eating it too, except that the cake and the eating part is Mm -hmm. challenging and doesn't always taste good. And some days you don't want to touch the cake at all. (laughs) Yep. Yeah.
1: Maybe we can get some moral uh, uh, conclusions from Schrodinger's cat that the cat is not dead or alive. It's like in a superposition of both. You don't need to be either emotionally sensitive or mentally curious. It can be in a superposition of both. Yes. Yeah. I
0: like that. I think that's...
1: And life is too short to limit yourself. I mean, you have to like pursue your passions wholeheartedly with, with all you have. Yeah. Um, yeah
0: well hey uh i think this has been great is, is we can keep going if you have anything else you'd like to add or talk about or
1: Mm-mm. i think that's it it was a very fun chat <laughs>
0: <laughs> and super enjoyable
1: yeah thank you yeah. for having me
0: Thank you for for coming. I'd love to have you back sometime. Maybe when you finish this research, you can reveal the secrets of the universe. Yeah,
1: next time, I'm gonna <laughs> explain to you the theories they published. So,
0: oh, that'd be wonderful.
1: <laughs> cross your fin- like, uh, uh, cross your fingers that I publish it soon I miss all the classes and <laughs> deadlines due. But but yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, keep doing the great work that you're doing. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.